And welcome to the Classical Music Pod. Sam and Tim here, joining you from our respective South London bedrooms. In this episode, we reveal why swans have inspired the best classical music of any animal. We unwrap the drama behind this year's BBC Young Musician of the Year competition. We speak to the composer Gabriel Prokofiev about creativity in quarantine. And decide which CD is going to make you feel like you've had a summer holiday. you're struggling to place the theme of that fugue written by Greek composer Nicholas Papadimitrou, then let me spell it out for you. C, diminished seventh, dominant to tonic, D, tonic, flattened supertonic, or as it could also be written, covid nine. What a clever bloke Papa Dimitriou is, taking his lead from the musical code maestros of J.S. Bach and Dmitri Shostakovich. Papa Dimitriou has written a fugue with a coded COVID as its first subject. He makes possibly the most erudite contribution yet to the rapidly expanding pool of corona-themed music, which at the moment is represented mostly by rappers, I think. Mm, yeah. You can listen to the whole thing at the link in the description below, where you'll also find a link to a really great piece from the LA Times, which covers the new pandemic pop craze. One of the few musical institutions that's managed to operate as normal during the COVID crisis has been the BBC Young Musician of the Year competition. However, a complaint has been issued to the UK's communications regulator Ofcom by the teacher of a BBC Young Musician quarter-finalist who wasn't chosen for the next stage in the competition. The teacher also issued a tirade against the judges, published on the Slip Disc blog, in which they professed their disgust at the decision, writing... Shame on you for promoting low standards, discouraging young people to believe and perhaps to stop participating in fairness in competitions. Mm. Although bribery and corruption in classical competitions, documented incidentally in a 1990 film about the ninth International Tchaikovsky competition, has, we hope, become a thing of the past, competitions remain a controversial topic in the industry. The principal of the Royal Birmingham Conservatoire, Julian Lloyd Webber, has called them either highly political or a fix for somebody's pupil to win it. And pianist Stephen Huff has written that competition mentality forces talented young players to present fully groomed interpretations early on, which gives insufficient time for experimentation, 
exploring dead ends, making mistakes, or trying daring and outrageous options, as he describes. In short, the student has to sound like a usually boring CD as soon as possible. Yeah, from the demonstrative nature of this particular teacher's outburst, we can probably infer a bias towards their own people, fair enough, which ironically demonstrates the biggest problem with these competitions, namely that, beyond a certain level, a performance is entirely subjective, and being judged by humans is at the mercy of biases formed throughout a lifetime of unique experiences. Everyone's going to come to a performance with different ideas of what makes it brilliant because they'll have had different experiences in their life. Those experiences may even include spending time with the pupil or the person on stage. Uh, How can you not have a different interpretation from the other judges on the panel if that's the case? Speaking of competitions... Decca has signed its youngest ever recording artist, the 12-year-old Melbourne schoolboy Christian Lee, who was joint winner of the Menuhin competition in 2018. Lee, who began learning the violin aged five, is to release a contemporary adaptation of a traditional Chinese folk tune later this month. We'll listen out for that. Critics have accused the label of exploiting Lee as a reliable cash cow, though, and... I have to admit, in the same way as competitions can limit diversity of interpretation and experimentation, by applying commercial pressure to the work of someone so young, I worry that Decker is willingly sacrificing the long-term best interests of an artist for the short-term financial gain. We don't want Christian's greatest contribution to be before he can buy a pint. We want him to keep developing as an artist for the rest of his life. Yep, I totally agree. Sam, for our news beat this week, what are you going to hit me with? I'm in the mood for some intense trap, Tim. BMW's latest electric car, the Concept i4, is to be scored by Hans Zimmer to replace the sonic vacuum left by the removal of a petrol engine. The uh, composer, along with BMW's in-house sound designer, Renzo Vitale, is going to write music for when the doors open, as the car starts up and as the car drives. BMW fans will also be pleased to hear of the world's first drive-in piano recital given on Saturday by the German pianist Alexander Critchell in Iserlohn near Dortmund. Drive-in concerts have also been trialled in Denmark and Lithuania with performances transmitted via FM to all those in attendance. Mm. The City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra will offer up to 5,000 free tickets to NHS workers once the pandemic is over. NHS workers can register their interest now on the CBO website. In London, meanwhile, St John's Smith Square has launched a Pay It Forward campaign to fund 500 concert tickets for NHS staff. Research by the Bundeswehr University in Munich has found the risk of corona infection when singing and playing music with wind instruments to be limited. Christian Kehler and Rainer Hein from the Institute of Fluid Mechanics and Aerodynamics conducted experiments that show air is only set in motion in the area of half a metre in front of the mouth. Regardless of volume and pitch, virus spread beyond this distance is extremely unlikely. And finally... Friends of the pod, Helen Charleston and Michael Craddock, whose wedding was cancelled due to the pandemic, have recorded a brand new piece of music written for them as a consolation wedding present from Owen Park. You can catch the performance in which the couple take turns to play the piano and sing in the link in the description below. In self-isolation There's no conversation My one consolation 
I have a thing where I make models of buses. I've got swans on the brain at the moment because the beautiful pair in Brockwell Park have hatched some eggs recently and watching their incubation has basically been the highlight of my quarantine. High on avian confidence, I'm ready to make an outlandish claim, Tim, an addition to the national surplus of unsubstantiated opinion. Oh boy. Swans have inspired the best classical music of any animal. Ooh, that is a good one, actually. Yeah, Sanson's The Swan. Tchaikovsky. Orlando Gibbons' The Silver Swan. Karloff's Swan Flambe from Carmina Burana. Considering they sound like this in real life, that's quite good going. But Sam, you've missed off Swan number one, Sibelius's Symphony number no. five, written between 1915 and 19 as a commission by the Finnish government to celebrate his own birthday. You're absolutely right, Tim. Sib 5 is the Supreme Cygnus Symphony, and this week's analysis aim is to work out why it's such a banger. This music makes me feel like I'm nine feet tall and ready to conquer the sun. It fills my ego with such confidence and certainty I could behave in a really arrogant way. Patience and I shook hands with everybody. Uh, you'll be pleased to know. But why, Tim? That's what I want to get to the bottom of today. In his diary from this period, Sibelius described the start of the symphony using the very sweet word riverlets. It's kind of, it's kind of like piglets, but for rivers. <laughs> he saw them building in momentum and joining together in an ever-increasing flow. Listen to how the horn, then the woodwind, build up that rushing tide of water pigs. The musical idea, the motif, is in a constant state of development, of becoming more and more itself, going from rivulet piglet to a full river pig. On its journey, it is gaining in length, momentum and character. Yeah, like any good pig river. <laughs> By the grand moment of arrival in the fourth movement, the music is fully developed and extended from an initial signet to a fully realised organicist metaphor, be that a swan, river or pig. But actually, it's not a strict, organic metaphor, is it? Well observed, Tim. There's so much repetition in this piece that it sort of confuses the direct development idea. If you're into musicologist James Hepikowski... Yeah, who isn't, right? He's a very clever guy who invents multisyllable words to make the clever thing he's thought of seem even cleverer. You might call it rotational form. The melody goes round and round, but with ever-increasing intensity. Imagine if someone ran by your house and glanced in the window. Now imagine if they ran by it repeatedly, on a loop, over and over again, glancing in every time. That would certainly gain in intensity. Yeah, until you eventually call the police. <coughs> Through repetition, Sibelius builds momentum, developing the motive, but also an intensity that is released on the arrival of the pigs slash police. Exactly. 
And as we've said before, goal-orientated music is teleological and tends to have the effect on the audience of making them feel more themselves themselves by the moment of arrival than they were at the beginning. It's an illusion of progress and self-actualization. It's kind of like a, an ego boost. Quite. And speaking of ego, there's a good case that Sibelius was a total egomaniac. In his diary, the composer described arriving into heaven and hearing God's own orchestra playing Sibelius's Fifth Symphony. And possibly a bit of a narcissist then. Yes, but a narcissist naturist. That is the one that isn't naked, right? The jolly swan bit in the fourth movement really is about swans. In his diary, he described being struck by seeing 16 swans flying overhead when he was out for a walk. There are loads of reasons it feels spectacular and massive at that moment. The orchestration for one, but perhaps... The sneakiest is to do with augmentation. Making something bigger. Exactly. As this tune is happening... The bass is playing this. It's the same! The exact same tune, at one-third of the speed. That tune really feels like it sits on the shoulders of giants. Which, of course, leads to the inevitable question, do swans have shoulders? Inevitable. Inevitable. The final rotation of the wheel has been reached. We get a subtle hint of this as the music is the same backwards as forwards. It's got nowhere left to go. It's a palindrome. Inevitable. Elberton of any. Inevitable isn't the first thing most people think when they hear the ending, though. Just as the swans feel like they're in full flight, the piece suddenly and dramatically ends with a succession of strong, isolated chords. It's a real black swan moment. No one predicts it. The events never seemed plausible, but it was always possible. Much like the discovery of black swans. Or vegan sausage rolls. Similar, similar. No one sees it coming, but in a way, it seems inevitable. The journey is complete, so the piece just ends. Sibelius feels Hollywood because the story ends with the climactic point. A blockbuster doesn't hang around to see the paperwork get filled out afterwards. The fifth and Hollywood are the edited, highlights real, glossy, photoshopped, studiously revised for four years in Helsinki until there are no spare notes versions of life. They are the swan, apparently effortlessly gliding along the surface. We never see that hard work, the feet pedalling underneath to remove stray viola harmonies. Whereas real life is usually conducted in shades of grey, this symphony, like swans, comes in clear black or white, with a sureness of purpose, arrival and end. That's why we feel great listening to it. We get some certainty. Sibelius V is a fantasy where all the decisions are clear, inevitable and final. We begin, make our struggle against the tundra and then arrive. No faff. At the end, it just ends.
I'm sure you've been enjoying the glut of online performances, Tim. Mm, everyone and their dog appears to have worked out how to multi-track and sync recordings. But if nothing else, lockdown is uh, forcing a crash course in music tech, which is great. Yeah, for me, if no one else. But not everyone <laughs> required a global pandemic to start working in a remote way. Our CD this week comes from a pair of guitarists who have been making music whilst separated by the Atlantic for years now. Here's a clip of it. Duo Tandem, who are not the high-selling baby buggy of the same name, met in 2012 when studying at the San Francisco Conservatory and have been recording and performing together ever since. Nikati and Mark, I hope I'm saying that right, Mark, isn't it, live in London and Chicago respectively now. So in order to rehearse and prepare for any recording or performance, they've been using this kind of video calling and WhatsApp messages for years now. So they're well ahead of the curve. And their new CD is Guitar Duos of Kemal Belevi. It was released just last Friday on Naxos. Two guys ahead of the curve, clearly. So who is Kemal Belevi? Belevi is a Turkish Cypriot composer born in 1954 who is a guitarist himself and says he wants to create beautiful music based on folk songs of the Eastern Mediterranean. He clearly has an idiomatic understanding of the instrument and explores a range of colours and yeah, he balances the textures like someone who really knows the guitar personally, I think. My failing uh, here is that I didn't always think of the guitar as a very expressive instrument, perhaps because we're so often hearing it as, you know, accompaniment to a singer-songwriter, you know, strumming away in the corner of a park. But Belevi understands the personality of the guitar as a classical solo instrument, and he can really tell stories with different techniques and bring out, yeah, the personality and expressive range of the instrument in a way that I certainly hadn't heard very often. Musically, what we end up with are melodies that are either folk songs or feel very much like folk songs, arranged in a variety of textures. It's a very heightened, souped-up version of the kind of songs you might have heard in the corner of a Greek restaurant. In that same way that Britain elevates British folk songs, Belevi is doing the same sort of things. You know, Sally Gardens by Britain is quite a spectacular piece of classical music. Similarly, these are quite virtuosic and certainly demanding on the performers. Whether it's taking you home or taking you to somewhere else for an escape, there's certainly a feeling of place and a knowledge of people on this disc that I think will help transport many people over the summer. It could be as close as I'm getting to the Mediterranean this summer. Yeah, I'm afraid so. A summer holiday in a CD. Some of these songs are really detailed, and I would say the only issue with having them all together on one disc is that if you listen straight through it, it could blur. It's worth treating them a bit more like an anthology, dipping in for one or two at a time, listening to them in detail, then coming back another day for a fresh set. Standouts for me were the Elegy from the Cyprian Suite and the Turkish Suite's Danza, which is a really harmonically funky, a gnarly little number played with a superb dynamic range. And how do duo tandem and their playing come across in general? Well, it's really hard to imagine that they're not hanging out the whole time. Their playing is so interwoven and beautifully expresses a reciprocal musical relationship, almost like one giant four-handed double-necked super guitar 
they also come across really well on their little promo vids they've done for the album. They look a bit like hitmen, these two shaven-headed blokes in all black carrying guitar cases. But then they'll crack a joke about you know something silly and chuckle away. Nikati is a Cypriot and makes jokes about how these songs are just or a la 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 to Mark, but actually they're his national anthem. They're really important to him. And that sort of lightness and joviality, willing to play with each other, really comes across in their playing. It reminds me of that uh, disc we reviewed quite a while ago now of Trio Zadigs, who recorded music that was written by one of their childhood friends. I think you can tell when people are playing stuff that means something to them personally, not just a favourite tune, but here's a tune that you know is part of my cultural upbringing, my roots. It's a very effortless listen to as well, because these two seem so in command of their instruments. I'm not a real classical guitar aficionado, I'm afraid. I can't pull apart the minutiae of their technique, but their ensemble, the balance of the parts, the warmth of their playing and the pacing of each arrangement is really, really spot on and you know, joy to sit down and listen to. Great. And duo Tandem's third disc guitar duos, Kamal Belevi, is out now on Naxos. You got to pick a pocket or two. Tema e variazione in do maggiore by Giovanni Battista Viotti, written in 1781. Mozart's Piano Concerto Number 25, Movement 1, written in 1786. Jean-Baptiste Lucien Grisson's Oratorio Esther, written circa 1787. The French national anthem La Massier, composed apparently in one night during the 1792 French Revolution by Claude-Joseph Rouget de Lisle. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke to the composer Gabriel Prokofiev, grandson of Sergei. We spoke about a whole load of things, his approach to composition, his love of dance and folk music, the upcoming disc of his two concertos for cello and turntables, and why he felt he had to move away from academic composition circles straight after he left university. I started off, though, by asking him how he was coping in quarantine. It's funny, you know, because I'm a, you know, I spend most of my time composing, and when I'm composing, you know, I am... I'm aiming for self-isolation in my studio and I don't want to be disturbed. I want to be by myself, locked away. So, you know, I actually live a lot of my life in a kind of lockdown. And so at first I thought, well, no change for me then. This is going to be fine. But actually, I have to say it's not been quite as easy as I thought, probably Mm. because there is this feeling of uncertainty and anxiety around and this awareness that, a lot of people are getting sick. A lot of people are dying before their time. So it isn't, it isn't actually quite the same. I think there's a sort of 
background unease almost, you know, in the air. But, but you know, I, I shouldn't complain because, I, you know, I am able to carry on with a lot of work. I've mm. got some big commissions lined up. I've got a... I'm just starting on a viola concerto and I've got a few other commissions lined up. So, um, you know, I've had some things cancel. I have had, had a really nice couple of gigs in Poland doing uh, this new Beethoven nine symphonic remix this piece of mine actually the piece is nine years old but it's just been released on naxos and that was going to be the launch event in poland so that's been cancelled that was a shame do you feel any i mean i suppose it's not that different practically but do you feel any pressure as as an artist to be reflecting the situation (laughs) yeah i think i do I, i in a way i do and i've been kind of thinking oh my god i really should be you know reflecting on this but um my fear is that if you sort of try too hard to suddenly sort of have some immediately profound or clever reaction to a situation that's just such a shock and it's so unprecedented it takes quite a lot i think it's taken quite a long time to kind of come to grips with it you know and and actually um understand really what's happening you know it, for, for at least for the first couple of weeks it feel the whole thing feels almost like a dream you know it feels more like something you read in a science fiction novel or is part of a film and then but then obviously it's still our same old familiar world the streets look the same the skies everything's the same I am keen to as an artist I yeah I do want to contribute and and help and um I did a a live interview conversation on Instagram last week talking about sort of ideas and advice for other composers musicians And I'm trying to post bits of music. I mean, I've got this album just came out, the Naxos album. So I'm putting some clips together for that. And I've got another album, the Concerto for Turntables and Concerto for the Cello Concerto about to come out. But I'm starting to write, just today I started sketching a solo viola piece, potentially for an album called Songs of Solitude for a, um, a young violist who lives in Berlin. And she's hoping to record a solo viola album of all different composers responding to the, this new self-isolation solitude. She's hoping to record it in the next couple of weeks and release it by the end of the month. So I'm kind of having to really think fast for that. And um, I think that's a lovely idea because, um, you know, her name is uh, Hiyoli Togawa. So she's, I think she's half Japanese, half Australian, but lives in Berlin. Yeah, so this is a project that she's put together with BIS Records. And so I'm going to quick, you know, that that for me suddenly was like, okay, Gabriel, there's, you know, that's an opportunity to to quickly reflect on the situation. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm an optimistic person, so I'm not going to write some really mournful um, elegy to sort of the sadness of solitude because, you know, also I'm fortunate I'm with my family. I'm with three kids and my wife, so we're kind of, we're all keeping each other very busy. What What's the um, approach you're taking with this? I mean... So sorry if you've only just started thinking about it, but this violin yeah. piece—have um, you? What, I mean, what's the seed? Well, I mean, I'm 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 trying to think about what um, what an artist can contribute to this, and 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 how I feel, and I'm just—I mean, what I—the way I work is I I I tend to do a lot of sketches for a project, and I try to do them quite quickly. I try to just do a sketch, work on a sketch for a couple of hours, or even an hour, or even half an hour, and just get a minute or two of music and then move on to another sketch. And so for something like this, I might do four or five different sketches 
then I come back to them in a very objective way, a very critical way, and sort of see which one's actually working. Because if, if I just start with an idea and see it all the way through, sometimes I might come back the next day and go, well, actually that idea itself wasn't that strong. And I find that if I do sketches, I'm more likely to kind of, one of them might have that real kind of magic. And so I kind of increase my chances of, of creating more interesting music if I do more sketches. Also, I get deeper into the whole feel of the what I'm trying to write, you know, takes a, you kind of warm up into it. So the piece I've just done now, that I'm, well, I'm working on now, I've called it, I've nicknamed it Calling Out, and it's kind of like a sort of call out of the music, kind of calling out to friends and other people and kind of almost like a call out of um, solidarity or comfort or, or warmth, some kind of thinking, you know, we need to call out to each other, keep in touch. You know, I'm not the best person actually at emails or even phone calls. I, I kind of easily get caught up in my own routine, and it's and it's actually saying no. We need to make sure we we keep in touch and we look out look out for each other. You know. Oh well, I, I look forward to. Well, it won't be long until I'm yeah. able to uh, <laughs> hear that. I yeah, suppose. we'll see. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. Yeah. I look forward. To yeah. It. You you mentioned your concerto for turntables and the cello concerto the disc that's coming out next yes. month. So that that's a, a 2018 recording, is it with the with the Ural Philharmonic? It is, yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, it's amazing, actually. It's actually uh, one and a half years ago the recording was made. And um, going back, it's quite it's what 15 years old, or or the concept is it about 15 years old by now, isn't it? Was it 2000? Well, it's interesting. Okay, or? yeah. So it's interesting. So the the concerto for turntables that was my first concerto. And actually, pretty much my my first kind of proper f orchestral piece. So it was a and it, and it ended up being a really important piece for me because, um, it, yeah, it got picked up by the Proms and the in two thousand and eleven. But I originally wrote it in two thousand six. So yeah, it's coming on to fifteen years old. So that's a piece that's had this incredible journey, and you know, it's been performed more than 55 nearly 60 times all around in all different parts of the world so it's you know, it's very exciting it's really had this life of its own and um for the proms it was the the national youth orchestra performed it and obviously they're huge and my original version was actually for more of a chamber orchestra you know i just wrote for what was available at the time and so that was a new commission for me to expand the orchestration into kind of huge symphonic forces. So this recording is the first time the, the full symphonic version has been recorded. And that was something I'd really wanted to do for a long time because it, it, it does have this whole extra power and excitement to it. You know, the, the, the original, there is a recording out there on non-classical recordings, which is the chamber version. And, and, and the Ural Philharmonic, they... In 2017, they did a performance with Mr. Switch, who's been the kind of leading soloist of this piece for the last ten, eight, eight years, I'd say, since the proms. And um, they performed it with him in their concert hall. And after it, Switch and myself, we looked at each other and said, my God, that was probably one of the best performances there's been. There was just something about the energy of the orchestra, their sound. They totally got into the piece. And so it was brilliant when then I had the chance to um, record it with them. You know, we sort of thought that would be the ideal group to record with. And it turned out they had pretty much a week. They had a whole week spare in their schedule. Their, the, all their players were on a salary. And so they were able to really support this, the, the, the album by offering their orchestra and their hall 
for for kind of no fee just con they wanted to do the recording so much you know it's 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 really difficult actually for contemporary composers to get orchestral music recorded because it's so expensive you know and there's not much money to be made now i mean there's a bit but not enough to cover orchestral recordings so you know very few labels are actually re releasing contemporary orchestral music people tend to play it safe and go for the kind of big works that they they feel safer and they think there will be more return on and so to get their support made a huge difference and so in the end we actually recorded four concertos in one week well in four concertos in five days basically that's we recorded the saxophone concerto and concerto for bass drum as well and that was done um they were released last year yeah i remember those coming out yeah Going back to the the conception of the the turntable concerto, it, it it uses orchestral samples rather than your classic drum hits yeah. and shouts that you might get in in hip hop, which is yeah, exactly. where it sort of was conceived, I suppose. Yes. Was that an attempt to disassociate the piece from a kind of often when you when things are contrived in it to be crossover classical crossover, you get a sense that it's. A, a bit of a gimmick in a way exactly yeah, that... you, you've got it you've got it exactly right so i mean that you you that's really really perceptive so when i got approached by will dutter he was a who's a pianist and an events producer he he actually approached me it was his original idea let's do this concerto for turntables he was a fan of turntablism and i was actually pretty skeptical i thought god it just sounds like a gimmick and i remember that in the 90s in the sort of late 90s i remember that scratching became really naff it like really lost its credibility it'd been something that'd been big in the 80s and then it really fell out of fashion and this idea of someone going waka waka sort of scratching it just seemed like just totally out of date and it had come back again i would say like by that period by the mid 2000s certain people were like porter's head had been using some scratching yeah, and lincoln park and 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 dj shadow and there were the sort of scene was coming back but i was still i thought god this could just be so embarrassing you know this orchestra and then this kind of cool hip-hop dj going whoa, 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 you know doing the kind of classic scratching over the top yeah so i at first i kind of i i said to will i'm really not sure that i can do this i just think it, i just can't really see how it's going to work and then i had a brainwave which was basically you know it's, it's the two worlds just aren't ever going to come together because those scratch sounds are so part of hip-hop culture and like you said it's gonna it's gonna be grating it's gonna just feel awkward over a kind of orchestral texture unless you were just doing say an orchestral version of existing hip-hop tracks you know which is not what i wanted to do i wanted to do a new concerto i don't really, i really wanted to move something forward and I love the turntables and then so the brainwave was that wait if I just take the sounds that the orchestra are actually playing and get the turntablists to scratch with them then there'll be this organic sonic connection between the turntables and the orchestra it'll all be from the same source and it will have this kind of honesty and a kind of um what's the word um genuine sort of connectedness to it and that really was the solution and I was so pleased when I thought of that and about the same time someone actually did a sponsored by Red Bull they also did a concerto for turntable that was done I think in Carnegie Hall and in that they just used classic hip-hop sounds and it was over sort of long beds of string chords quite cinematic and it just felt like what you'd expect and it kind of was cool but it felt like musically it wasn't going anywhere new and actually what what i love about the turntables is that is you can scratch with 
so many different sounds and you can create such a wide range of sounds and it's so tactile and and um it's expressive, expressive. Isn't it? expressive. in the way that it really is um, perhaps pre 80s era pre-recorded sampled music wasn't it was more passive like you know your your john cage is you know, if you're performing it live you're pressing play and then sitting there and letting it do its thing but i guess the turntable it is an expressive instrument that you have yeah. control over it's really weird actually that in the in the classical electronic world the world of music concrete and electroacoustic music People don't use turntables at all. I mean, John. Ironically, John Cage did use a turntable for lands, imaginary landscape number one back in the forties. But that was just because at that time magnetic tape didn't exist, hadn't wasn't available yet. He used the turntable just to play back some sign tones. That's the 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 only thing he did with turntables, really. But yeah, you're right. It, it was people were just playing stuff, and there was a search for more expressive electronic instruments, but no one thought of turntables. And it and it, it the whole culture completely developed as an urban, you know, street instrument starting in New York, you know, in the Bronx and in in Brooklyn, and and Harlem, and then slowly became a kind of global phenomenon. And then you know, in the 90s, you get people doing it all around the world, and you get these DMC. DJ competitions and it, and it opens up to be a kind of art form and w when people are continually looking for new techniques and pushing it further and further so for me I, I saw a parallel with the turntables actually with the emergence of the piano or the violin with steel strings that allowed much more virtuosic playing you know the piano with the metal frame and when you see those instruments when they emerged there were periods when musicians were having battles piano duels you know Beethoven having a piano duel or Paganini on the violin duels and this whole concept of people pushing the techniques and that's exactly what's happening has has been happening with turntables for the last 30 years now you know people battling and and, and looking for the new techniques and so I sort of saw a parallel there and thought actually this is this is the kind of future virtuosic instrument of our times and it deserves a concerto, and and there are more and more class. It's turning up more and more in classical music, and I think it is a, a really special instrument. Do you see a kind of parallel in uh, hip hop street dance or, or even electronic dance music with folk music in the way that it's kind of by the people, for the people, an, an organic? Yeah, I mean, that's something I really feel strongly about that um, throughout history, I mean, it's difficult when you try to categorise music and I, I, I'm, I don't really like... It, when when you it, when people imply that there's high art and low art, I don't like the boundaries before that. I think it's more that different music have different different functions and and kind of emerges in different ways. And um, I mean, what you could call folk music is yeah, is the music just is is the music made by people to entertain themselves. And it's you know, it seems sounds like an old fashioned term now, but actually, and you know, any kind of popular music or dance music is actually a modern form of folk music you know it's it's it, and it's music that does emerge out of a kind of social 
and geographical situations. So mm. if you look at different forms of, of, say, electronic dance music or pop music in different parts of the world, often you can see how they emerge by different groups of people coming together, different um, environmental situations, social situations. So that very, for me, that, that emphasises the idea that you know, popular music and dance music as well and hip-hop is a form of folk music and is a result of social situations. You know, a classic example is something like Jungle and Drum and Bass, which came out of inner city, you know, and it was a kind of fusion of um, Jamaican dance hall, but with then using samplers, you know, the Akai sampler, I guess, actually comes from Japan, but had been used in hip-hop, but then it's got a sort of darkness to it that wouldn't have happened in Jamaica, you know, a warmer, more upbeat country. You know, you, it had to have come from somewhere a bit more cloudy and grim like London. And it has these horn, often has haunting sort of minor chords that then feel like they almost connect a bit to, you know, I guess some kind of Britishness, a sort of sad, a folky element, even though you wouldn't immediately hear that. But harmonically, there's a sort of darkness a melancholic sound that's definitely comes from this this part of the world. So you do have this interesting kind of melting cultural melting pot and social results in something like jungle music. And then obviously the drum beat that they use, the Amen break, that comes from a soul band from 70s America, but that which is more from like that's the hip hop culture of sampling. But then you'll get people sampling jazz music, classical music into their jungle or drum and bass music so then it has this other all these other influences come into it so that but that's music that that no one sat down and thought okay i'm gonna i've got this idea i'm gonna take this and this and put it together it's the kind of thing that really evolved very organically so people got hold of samplers they were trying to make their own beats and somehow they started making them faster than hip-hop and somehow that felt right with the the energy in the, in in London where they were living, and certain sounds work well on the sound system, and all these things just evolve in a very natural way. And I think, yeah, as you said, in classical music, particularly since the mid twentieth century, it's got much more and more self conscious and kind of um, inward looking and and self and analytical and very aware of its process, you know. And and a lot of art, modern art, we kind of almost obsessed with process and how we did something. Whereas you've got other musics that's just kind of evolving without really thinking about it. And I find that really exciting. And so I, I'm really interested in doing classical music that connects with the wider musical world and does connect with music that's just evolving in a more organic way. And, and classical music used to be much more like that. You know, if you look at any music, if you look at music from... 100, 200, 300 years ago. If you look at the tempo markings or the, the title, you've got gavotte, gigue, saraband, pavan, waltz, lists and lists of all these terms for pieces that are all dances, and those were all folk dances. So that's, for me, that's a big thing. I really like to connect with the dance music, the club music, the music of our time that's just, that's kind of evolved to reflect the world we live in and incorporate that in that energy, those rhythms in classical music, that's how composers did it in the past. You know, they, that's how they made their music current and have a, a, a contemporary energy. So, so that's very much my approach, definitely. And, and, and the turntables are, are actual physical embodiment of that because there's an instrument that directly has come from street culture and the club culture. Yeah. Am I right in saying that one of the reasons you first got or went into dance and electronic music was it? 
a sort of dissatisfaction with the contemporary classical scene whilst you were studying yeah 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 that's totally right i mean i i did a masters uh york university and that was in that was in electroacoustic music you know so i kind of that became my focus was you know cl- electronic classical music what I, I just i i just got really f- disheartened and kind of disillusioned by the fact that there we were these young composers and young musicians writing music that meant a lot to us putting a lot of energy into it and obviously, you know, when you write music, you're reflecting your life experience. And it's natural that you'd want to share that with people of, who are having similar experience, your own age group, as well as other as older people. But there seemed to be no interest at all in trying to reach out to the audience, you know. And so when there'd be concerts put on in the university, that you know, where were the other students? They wouldn't come. It would just be the boyfriend or girlfriend of the composer and a couple of other musicians or something. You know, they just felt like, People had almost resigned themselves or accepted that, hey, you know, we're doing this difficult contemporary music that no one's really going to understand and that's just how it is. And I just really wasn't going to, wasn't happy with that at all. I just thought that was completely crazy. You know, it just, it just didn't make any sense to be investing all your energy into an art form and being kind of accepting that maybe, you know, you're going to have a tiny audience. It, I, I kind of, I was frustrated that for me, music's so much about communication and, and the joy of creating music and of writing music. You want to share that with an, 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 as many people yeah. as possible. And do you think that, do you think there's any evidence that that might be changing a little bit? I mean, you said that, that you think that the younger generations are perhaps more used to adapting and, more used to this kind of crossover do you think that that'll feed into the contemporary classical world and perhaps make it a bit more uh open and, and receptive and- mm. yeah i definitely i mean i do think in the in this you know in the 21st century things are changing and 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 people are, are becoming more open to to what classical music and contemporary classical music can be i mean a lot of certainly a lot of the the music colleges now are less conservative and less kind of traditionalist and dogmatic more and more colleges offer jazz and they do offer the opportunity to look at popular music and electronic music just outside the classical realm and and people are starting to see that they don't have to be strictly follow an academic path you know that i mean my argument you know would be that there isn't a single path for classical music and whereas it seems like in the 20th century you had to sort of belong you had to sign up to a a dogma or a style you know you were either a minimalist or a serialist or you know or or more sort of academic type composer or you're very obsessed with process and it was more about music or or, or it was about performance and theatre and now I think it's certainly the boundaries are easing up and there and there are classical people who are who kind of maybe aren't afraid to say that they like other genres and incorporate them with their classical work. So I think, I mean, I guess it's people like myself going on about it, you know, that classical music didn't used to be an island. It didn't used to be cut off. And actually, you know, that's not really helping the music and, and also it's, it's kind of accessibility. Yeah, absolutely. There is a kind of, there are quite a lot of composers who are, who are writing in a less academic way and are following, I would say, sort of following their ears a bit more. There's a less, a less less of a fear of consonant sounds in music as well, a kind of rediscover, new appro- people trying to reapproach modality, tonality, microtonality as well, bring that into it. So, so I think there are, um, 
you know, we were in a kind of new um, period of of exploration in a way, you know, in 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 different ways. Well, it's continuing. It's continuing from the last century, but but certainly there's a sort of new energy for 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 kind of I suppose warmer sounds, you know. Yeah. Well, Gabriel, I think we've covered quite a lot of ground there. Um, before you go, the recording's out on the 22nd. Are you planning anything for the release? We were, for the saxophone and um, bass drum concerto, we did a really nice launch party with um, Zakuski, which is like Russian um, pickles and snacks with vodka shots. And I got some really great vod Latvian and Lithuanian vodka and we had a really nice party in the Pushkin House in central London. And and I was hoping to do something similar with this, maybe even a club with Mr. Switch would do a DJ set as well. Yeah. But the 22nd of May, lockdown is not going to be over by then. So we're planning, but we're still going to do a party. So we're going to try and do like a sort of live streaming launch party. Mr. Switch, he can do a full performance of the concerto because he can use the backing track of the full orchestra and then do the turntables part live. So we will have a pretty decent performance from him. Yeah, and I'll, I don't know if I can get Baris to live stream some of the cello concerto. We'll see what's possible. Yeah, well, we'll be looking out for whatever you end up deciding to do. But until then, it's been great to catch up. Lovely to speak. Yeah, yeah really nice to speak to you. Finish! There are so many wonderful digital offerings popping up every day that it's a little overwhelming trying to keep track of them all. So rather than listing everything, we recommend Alternative Classical's Concert Roulette, where you can choose from a lucky dip of online concerts or opt for any combination of Baroque, Renaissance, Romantic, Classical, 20th century or contemporary music. There's a link to the roulette in the description below. There are, however, a couple of birthdays that we should flag. Firstly, Claudio Monteverdi, who turns 543 on the 15th of May, Claude Greenhill. Eric Sarti's birthday is on the 17th, Clara Schumann's on the 20th, and Wagner is on the 22nd. The 29th is also the anniversary of the infamous premiere of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring in 1913 in Paris, which caused that riot that was possibly staged and not really a riot anyway. Fake news. <laughs> <laughs>